Welcome to The Buyer's Desk, an Infra podcast. We'll guide you through quick snapshots on Infra trends and insights, interviews with member store buyers and brand founders, and we have curated segments from Infra staff. Hey, folks, and thanks for joining us on another episode of The Buyer's Desk. I'm Chris Sorensen, Promotions Program Manager. And I'm Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs, and we are your hosts. And we're back to talk about the fascinating world of fermentation. You know, this is a technique that's been used by cultures around the world for centuries to transform raw ingredients into unique and delicious foods and beverages, which is a super fun, funky topic to talk about. Ha, funky. I see what you did there, Chris. Do you have a favorite fermented food? Oof. I mean, I like sauerkraut on a brat. I'll just have to say that. Or even kimchi, you know, depends on the vibe you're going for. I love sauerkraut. I've made it myself at home. I actually have one of those crazy giant mandolin looking things where I can put a whole head of cabbage and like shred it. And I'm really just telling you that to tell you how much I love sauerkraut. Mm, yeah, sauerkraut is good. Even the pizza luce over here uh, had an Oktoberfest uh, sauerkraut pizza with brats on it. Super good. I loved it. I love that. I think that one of my favorite parts about this episode is that it was impossible to talk to really anybody without having them share their home fermentation stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've only really done like the quick pickling, you know, the stuff that you just put in that's super fresh and that's only good for a few days, but that's still good. Gives adds a zing. And you are and you did it. So like I, I feel like everyone, at least in the last couple of years, that's peripherally involved in grocery and kind of seen the rise of this has at least tried something at home. I shredded some cabbage. I left it in a corner. Do you want to try it? <laughs> I like the seeing the rise in this because people also got really into sourdough. Oh, that's true. Look at you with all your fermentation puns today. I love this. <laughs> yeah, I never did it. That seemed like too much for me. But So what do you got going on in the show today? Well, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with Max Becker from Uncle Dean's Natural Market in the great state of Maine. He gives us a fantastic fermentation rundown, of course, talking about his own home fermentation experiments and how many of the yeah raw ingredients they sell for people. Um, and I love the way he juxtaposed the you can do it yourself or look at this cool person that's using traditional methods to do it for you. And wait, you talked to some infra people that were also home fermenters. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked to Nick Ozan. He's the director of purchasing and Michael Panik, who is a retail consultant. And they're both home fermenters. And so they talk about some of their stories and maybe some of the issues they've ran into and what to look for. So so that was fun to hear. Um, but then I got to sit down uh, with Rafa De La Campo. He's the founder of De La Calla Tapache. And so he's actually a scientist, like a fermentation scientist. So it, he kind of came at this from, from kind of that background and that angle, which is really cool to hear about that story. And even the history of Tapache and how even this product came to market um, and I had to ask him, too, how the, the people in Mexico City respond to a, a commercialized product like this. So you'll hear that answer from him. I love that. And then we would go from, you know, a scientific perspective to a data centric perspective. And of course, we would not have a complete episode if it was not for our resident spin expert, Jim Olson, and his brand centric, data loving three minute segment. But first, we're going to hear from Morgan at HealthAid, a gut-healthy fermented tea brand with some super tasty flavors. Hi, my name's Morgan, and I'm the social and digital manager at HealthAid Kombucha. 
Everyone's been talking about gut health, but it can be difficult to find ways to incorporate fermented foods into your daily routine and find something that you really look forward to eating or drinking. Health Aid Kombucha is a delicious, fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that makes incorporating fermented foods into your diet easy. You can drink Health Aid just like you would a soda, plus it delivers all the benefits of fermented foods. It's all organic, bubbly, and super refreshing. And you can feel great about it because it's actually good for your gut. There are so many delicious flavors perfect for any occasion, like Pink Lady Apple, Ginger Lemon, and my personal favorite, Passion Fruit Tangerine. If you're looking to add gut-healthy fermented options into your diet and haven't tried HealthAid, now is the time. Visit HealthAid.com or follow us at HealthAid on Instagram to learn more. Hello, I'm Jim Olson, SPIN's Retail Insights Manager for Infra, here with a rundown of what's happening on the data side of the natural foods industry. Fermentation is a fascinating ecological process that has been happening with or without human intervention for centuries. Its adoption into the natural foods industry was a no-brainer, though the different ways fermentation has been utilized varies widely by category and by company. While kombucha and yogurt were once seen as staples and the easiest points of entry, several current brands are pairing fermentation and innovation to move the process into fascinating new categories and ingredients that appeal to natural and conventional shoppers alike. De La Calle is one of the more recent success stories in the natural food space, utilizing centuries-old Mesoamerican fermentation techniques to bring a classic Mexican beverage to the mainstream. Just three years old, De La Calle's line of tepache, a fermented beverage utilizing pineapple rinds and an array of spices and aromatics, has become a hit both in its unique heritage-based flavor pairings as well as health benefits that include probiotics and vitamin C. Best of all, De La Calle's infra sales are up 14%, and an excellent entry in the carbonated beverage category. Staying in the beverage category, Groovy, a line of non-alcoholic drinks, are successfully riding the wave of non-alcoholic beverage interest of the past few years, spurred on primarily by Gen Z and more sober curious lifestyles. Founded in 2019, Groovy offers both NA wine and NA beer options, with its beer undergoing the same full fermentation process of alcoholic beer, but using temperature controls to eliminate alcohol created during production. The process must be working pretty great so far, as Groovy's Golden Lager just took home the gold medal in the NA category at the World Beer Cup. Even more rewarding, Groovy sales are up 6% across infra. I also want to highlight the amazing efforts being made in non-beverage categories as well. Brands like Prime Roots are using biomass fermentation to take koji-based fungus and blend them with other plant-based ingredients to create various meat alternatives that believably mimic the taste and mouthfeel of real meat products. Nature's Find is another company getting funky with fungi, putting the mycelium-supported fungi protein known as Fusarium strain Flavolapis through a liquid air interface fermentation process to produce a protein they thankfully shortened to Phi. Phi, along with its nine essential amino acids, provides an alternative source of protein for Nature's Find's line of plant-based items from meatless patties to cream cheeses and even salad dressings. While both Prime Roots and Nature's Find are still relatively new to the market, I am excited to chicken on their sales performance at the end of the year. Fermentation was, is, and will continue to be a cornerstone of food production, both domestically as well as internationally. It's been a great conduit for bringing heritage-based flavors to the mainstream and a successful means to support alternatives to animal-based foods, all using a completely natural process free of pesticides and additives that speak to the modern consumer looking for clean food. I encourage you to try out these and other fermented brands and discover their benefits for yourself and your customers. As always, I'll see you at the show.
I'm joined today by Max Becker, grocery buyer at Uncle Dean's Natural Market. How's it going, Max? Doing well, Angela. How about you? I am doing great. It is so excited to have you on our show today. I am particularly interested in your thoughts on fermentation. But before we get into the subject matter at hand, why don't you tell me a little bit about like you, grocery, how's it going? Oh, it's going well. I love what I do. Uh, I've always loved food and we've approached food from many different directions in our family. Uh, We have a small homestead. We actually raise a lot of our own food. We've always gone out of our way to buy good quality food, local food, you know, to buy raw ingredients, make our own wherever we can. Uh, We have had a commercial farm in the past, small scale market garden. Uh, We produced our own olive oil. That was actually in Southern California, which is where I grew up. I've lived for the past five years in central Maine, and uh, that brought me to Uncle Dean's. Awesome. Southern California to Maine. I suppose I have some follow-up questions there, but today we're going to start talking about <laughs> fermentation. So I heard you've been to a fermentation festival like or a trade show. Will you tell me about that? Yeah, it was a festival. Uh, this was back in California. Uh, some people we knew through the farmer's market, they were actually customers of ours, were also event planners. And they, like us, were very inspired by a cookbook which came out, I think it was in the mid to late 90s, called Nourishing Traditions. It was by uh, Sally Fallon Morrill. And she is a strong proponent of home fermentation and fermentation of all kinds of different things from beverages to vegetables to meats and dairy and sourdough bread. And, you know, almost every food group we can think of traditionally had a fermented component, and that was actually how food was preserved before refrigeration. So uh, it's a very hands-on process that is very doable at home, and much of our food has come to be processed in more recent years. So this festival was kind of a, a way to celebrate that and bring awareness to the fact that you can ferment in your own kitchen with mason jars and vegetables and things that are close at hand. I love Sally Fallon. I will tell you, nourishing traditions was one of my first, you know, I should be reading ingredients. And I saw her speak once and she and I share a deep love of butter. (laughs) Yep. She's all about the butter. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I love this. So will you tell me a little bit like I love fermentation being grounded in this in like in tradition and a natural preservative. Tell me a little bit about how you see it like now showing up on the grocery shelf. Well, the interesting thing is that the tradition of fermentation is just a win-win. It is not only easy and doable by anyone in their home, uh, it also does preserve food, makes it last longer, but it also increases the nutritional value and the digestibility of that food. So I think what we're seeing in the retail world is we're seeing those values reflected and picked up on, and consumers are becoming, number one, more aware of fermented foods, I think they're becoming less scared of them. Uh, There has been some taboo around fermentation and living foods and bacteria, uh, which interestingly enough does not need to be the case with fermented foods. It's not like canning where you have to create a sterile environment. You're actually deliberately cultivating friendly bacteria and they are crowding out the bacteria that would be harmful. So as the public grows in awareness of it and particularly of the health benefits and the great taste of fermented foods, I think the retail world is responding and providing more and more fermented foods and some in a very traditional manner. 
any brands or SKUs that you feel like you want to call out because you feel like they're doing it great? Um, I mean, when it comes to national brands that most people are going to be familiar with, uh, some of my longtime favorites include Bubby's. You know, Bubby's uh, pickles and sauerkraut, they're in the refrigerated section for a reason because um, they are fermented. And while they would last on a shelf for quite a while, and I can tell you, we've, in my own family, you know, we'll buy Bubby's and we'll stick it on the shelf and you know, it will last for weeks outside the fridge. It's just going to keep fermenting a little bit and get a little bit more sour. Uh, but the reason it's in the refrigerator is, you know, it's not uh, canned in a vinegar brine. It is actually lacto-fermented. The only ingredients in there are, you know, the cabbage, uh, water, and salt. And maybe, maybe some seasonings too. So that's a great one on the veggie side. Uh, for kombucha, I've followed HealthAid from almost the beginning. And they were actually a very small company at this fermentation festival about 10 years ago. And I mean, they have exploded since then. I've, I've tasted a lot of kombuchas in my day and HealthAid is truly one of the best. Completely agree with both of those brands. Love Bubbies. Just discovered their uh, spicy kraut, actually. Blew my mind having been a consumer of theirs for a long time. I just had never come across it. And yeah, HealthAid, they do all the right things. They've survived numerous rounds of lawsuits to defend their process and they are still thriving. It's awesome to see. I remember one of their um, one of their promotional phrases was that uh, their batches are small enough that you can hug them. <laughs> so, I've never heard that. I like that so much. I don't know if that's still true. I haven't heard it in a while, but I know uh, back in the day on their bottle, it said uh, brewed in small batches. All of them are small enough to hug. Do you feel like your grocery staff, when they're talking to customers, need more education around fermentation? Do you feel like customers are asking interesting questions or is this just something that's like, oh, I've heard about kombucha and I'm, I'm probably picking it up? Uh, customers are certainly interested and they are asking the questions. Um, I have a lot of conversations on the floor. I'll sometimes bring it up. Like if I see their interest or if I see they're looking for a probiotic, I might also mention the probiotics in uh, fermented foods, which aren't as potent as a you know probiotic in capsule form, but it is a steady source of probiotics in your gut. Uh, I do feel like we could use um, some more um, education in the staff, not Everyone on our staff eats or drinks uh, fermented foods on a regular basis, uh, but all, almost everyone you know, would eat yogurt. I think a lot of people have tried kefir by now. Most of them enjoy kombucha. So yeah, we, we have a lot of offerings on the floor and I am trying to see that it gets talked about more. Awesome. Is it a way, I mean, is it a, I feel like it's something that you have sounded passionate about kind of given your roots and given your the fermentation that you've done on your own at home. So if a new line was presented to you and they use traditional methods of fermentation, would that be something that you would maybe specifically bring them in for because you think that that is an interesting subcategory? And if so, have you seen stuff like that? Yeah, that is certainly something I look for when I am seeing products like uh, pickles or you know a new kefir or something. It's interesting. I did actually find recently, and I haven't brought it in yet, but I'm considering it. Um, there is a kefir. Uh, the brand is slipping my my mind. It might be Origin or Family Farmstead. And uh, it's only available locally in the Northeast. I think it's available to us through Four Seasons Produce Company. And they have a traditionally fermented kefir, which is actually very unusual to find on the shelf. Usually what you'll find is something like Lifeway, which is an excellent product that we sell a lot of. Uh, and I've recently expanded the SKUs we offer and it's doing very well. 
But with Lifeway, they have 12 specific cultures that they inoculate the dairy with. And they are cultures that are found in traditional kefir, but traditional kefir made from kefir grains has, I think, upwards of 30 different strains. And it, it's, a, it's a much more probiotically diverse product that's harder to recreate in a laboratory. So Lifeway is creating a very consistent product, and there's a virtue in that. But if I see something like a traditionally made kefir, and we do get one now from a local Amish farm that's just about 20 minutes away, and that blows off the shelf uh, weekly. We, we sell that out, and we're pretty much taking all they can give us. Ah, I love that. All right, Max, last question. When I reached out to you and said, let's talk fermentation for my podcast, was there anything at all that you were like coming in here, like prepared to talk about that I did not ask you about? Um, I mean, the only thing I might emphasize is just how doable fermentation is at home. And not only do we have the fermented products that we sell on the floor, but we sell a lot of products that can be fermented. And mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of our customers are, you know, they're, uh, you know, working class, budget conscious people who are trying to feed families. And I tell them, if you can't afford to buy kefir, buy milk and you know, buy one container of kefir. If it's the traditionally prepared one from the Amish, you can just keep adding milk to it. And you can, you know, just buy your milk from us and make your own kefir. Buy your cabbage, add salt, put it in a mason jar, seal it you've got your bubbies right there. So I, I do have those conversations on the floor a lot, uh, pointing out the different possibilities that people can buy the raw ingredients here, take them home and yeah, go wild with it. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about the grocery store, you can do it yourself or you can rely on somebody else to do it. And it kind of sounds like in your market, you have some interesting national and super local options. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today, Max. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Angela. My pleasure. Hey, Angela. So, you know, I always love Jim's three minutes of insights, but I, what I really loved about this segment this time around was his calling out that fermentation was a great conduit to bring these heritage-based flavors to the mainstream, which I, I never thought of it from that way. That's super cool. I like that too. For, did he make it through the whole description without using the term old school? I can't remember. No, I don't. <laughs> it's true though. I mean, I, I I say traditional, but I love that he like actually connected it to culture. Yeah, yeah, that that old school flavor. Um, but what I really loved about uh, your interview with Max, like first off, Max is just like the perfect buyer for a natural food store. Like his upbringing, his connection with food, I just found so fascinating. And I just think that that knowledge base is so indispensable for, for like a buying position or just anyone in a natural food store. And I think the, the big thing that I found with having a really good knowledge base on the sales floor is, you know, when you're out of something, you can teach a customer how to make something. You know, I don't know how many times that I had a customer come in and say, you're out of ghee. And it's like, well, you know, you can just take butter, you can simmer it, and then you can let the water evaporate and strain the dairy that's solidified out and you got ghee. And they're like, no, ghee and butter are different. And it's like, no, that's, you can make it. So I love that about Max, teaching people how to ferment, you know, right on the sales floor. Super cool. Yes, I love too that like clearly either just his staff listening to him kind of break this down for people or his staff being equally interested in, you know, topics like fermentation. It seemed like they had a really good vibe on like everybody needs to be educated about these things. And I know like it's 
so cute in our interview, but like, oh, we both love Sally Fallon, like old school, natural, like food author. And so that we did not plan that ahead of time. It just was completely spontaneous. <laughs> it was so spontaneous in that interview. But yeah, I just, I don't know if people remember nothing else about me, like posthumously, if they remember how much I love butter, I'm into it. Nice. Well, or ghee, <laughs> or is it, it's, it's all butter. Oh, see that we really did bring that back around. It's like a lovely way. Yeah. Well, it is all butter. I just, you know, like there are a lot of things to associate with Sally Fallon, like, you know, home home preparations of things like fermentation. And she taught me how to make my own nut milk like way back in the day. Uh, But I also just we both love butter. Who doesn't love butter? I mean, I like vegan butter, but that's another thing. I was going to say, like, it could be any fat, the fat that you use to choose to make other things more palatable and digestible. Like, I'm into it. I'll find a better way to like choice. Yeah. Your fat of choice. We all have one. I love that. Well, let's get right into that conversation with uh, Nick and Michael, where we talk about home fermentation, foraging for new brands and even how to incorporate fermented foods in the deli. But first, we're going to hear from Mac at Cleveland Kitchen a maker of super delicious ferments from kraut to kimchi to pickles and dressings. Hi, this is Mac Anderson, co-founder of Cleveland Kitchen. We make the freshest, crunchiest, most delicious ferments on the market. We have several different varieties and we really focus on utilizing local farmers' produce to ferment that delicious and probiotic-rich goods with a fantastic price point so the consumers can enjoy them on a daily and weekly basis and that our retail partners can enjoy great velocity in sales. We really focus on sustainability, working with those great small farmers, and most importantly, chef-driven flavor and crunch so that usage occasions from avocado toast and eggs in the morning to wraps, rice dishes, fish tacos throughout the day are key. And it's a great way to get in that natural fermentation from the lactobacillus that naturally occurs on our green cabbage. And we ensure that across our flavor varieties, everything is going into fantastic chef-driven dishes. And we hope you can enjoy it. You can find us at clevelandkitchen.com and follow along for delicious recipes and stories about our brand at Cleveland Kitchen on Instagram and TikTok. We hope you enjoy with that crunch in your lunch. Hey folks, today we're talking fermentation and I'm joined by a few infra staff that know how to get down with kimchi, kombucha and all the other ferments out there. I'd like to welcome Nick Ozon, the Director of Purchasing and Home Fermentation Guru and Michael Panik, Fresh Retail Consultant and Food Service Extraordinaire. Hey folks, how's it going? Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yeah, well, let's let's start off just by kind of the beginnings of fermentation, right? So humans have been fermenting foods for thousands of years, all the way back to the Neolithic age, long before we even understood the science behind it. Louis Pasteur, a French chemist and microbiologist, discovered the interworkings of microbial fermentation and how organisms initiate fermentation. Fascinating stuff, right? But now we can buy fermented products in store, right on the shelf, from pickles, kraut, and kimchi, as well as sourdough bread, cheese, yogurt and beverages like kombucha, tapache, and beer. So many different things. So Nick, let's start with you. What are you seeing as some of the emerging trends and innovations in fermentation in the natural foods product space? And why do you think these are becoming so popular? And then we'll jump over to Michael and we can talk a little bit more about emerging trends for retailers around fermented foods in the food service realm. But Nick, why don't you kick this off for us? Well, you you mentioned one of them, Chris, and that's tapache. That hit the scene probably about a year and a half, two years ago, but has been a long 
standing traditional fermented beverage in, in Mexico and other parts of South America. And that one I find really fascinating. It's a slightly different process than kombucha, but produces a similar sort of gut-friendly bacteria. Tapache is literally just the rinds of a pineapple that ferment, lacto-fermentation, and turn into this delicious, effervescent, but light beverage. Not as vinegary as kombucha and not as sweetened as, as we find a lot of the kombuchas on the shelf. So that's one that I've really been enjoying. I've also been exploring other fermentation processes and how food's created. And one that I find really fascinating is biomass fermentation. And that's literally growing some sort of culture in a liquid. The liquid has different sugars uh, and yeasts that help feed the biomass. But Meaty is a brand that uses biomass fermentation to to deliver a plant-based protein. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's not like the precision fermentation that we hear about on the plant-based. This is this is a totally different process. Yeah, biomass is different than precision fermentation. Cool. Well, thanks for thanks for that, Nick. And Michael, how's this looking kind of in the the food service realm? Well, uh, sauerkraut has been the old standby in food service, though jarred, so it is pasteurized. We don't get that gut-friendly functionality of the product, but we're seeing more kimchi and fermented garlic that is appearing in on menus and in products. So if your customers are looking for gut-healthy inclusions in their diet, live ferments are the way to go. Since food safety is our top priority, you don't see a lot of house-made products because those have to go through specific handling procedures. So if you are someone that wants to include more of those live fermented products without all of the hassle of that is to purchase the brands that you normally see on the shelf and incorporate those into your products. So it could be pickles, sauerkraut, onions, kimchi, etc. that are all live for consumption. Cool. Is, is there any of those brands that you have a, like a go-to, anything that you really dig or something that's like always works in a dish for you? Yes. It's usually the the live sauerkrauts because they have many different flavors, many different profiles. So you might have some that are seasoned with seaweeds or they're more of a spicy touch that add that can actually add really nice flavor to sandwiches or wraps or even in just regular deli salads are really nice. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's jump over to like cultural regional because there's a lot of different variations of fermented foods because you even mentioned kimchi and kraut. And it's interesting because like at the macro level, sauerkraut, you know, is kind of comes from those Germanic regions. And then kimchi comes from the Asian regions. They're kind of a, a similar type of product, but different flavor profiles. And then you have like Nick mentioned tapache. We even have Rafa from uh, De La Calla on this episode uh, talking about the tapache and how it originated in kind of the Mesoamerican regions, like handed down from the Aztecs that he talked about. And now you find those variations all across Mexico today. But I think it's interesting to kind of pull that back into the the retail store. And how do you think natural food buyers can capture that localization of fermented foods and beverages in their stores to create a solid product mix, but also cater to each of their unique demographics? Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess my first thought is going to the farmer's markets, uh, so your local farmer's markets, because those are the folks that do fermentation and really have a regional flavor to it. I love going to the local ones here. There are several great producers of sauerkraut, kimchi, curdito uh, that all started out at the farmer's markets. 
got discovered by buyers and, you know, worked their way to being a retail product. So I would definitely encourage folks that are exploring maybe what the best fermented foods to have on their shelf is, is going to the farmer's markets because a lot of the customers are going there because that's the only place they can find it. I've even noticed that with kombucha sets, right? It's like it's, as you go to stores kind of all throughout the country, there's kind of the national brands, but it seems like kombucha is another one of those that's regional. How can folks find out more about kombucha? Is that something that's even at farmer's markets or is there another source to, to go after kombucha? I don't see kombucha quite as often at the farmer's market. You know, I run into it occasionally. Honestly, a lot of it is just me Googling local kombucha makers. I think there are even some fermentation clubs out there where you can go and meet other folks that are making these products. Me personally, I go to my local co-ops to find what's happening in, in the kombucha world because they typically are going to be the outlet for those makers uh, and getting their product to customers. I've noticed also, you know, with more of the kind of sober curious or dry movement, a lot more bars are bringing in kombucha to have as a NA option. You know, there's Urban Growler not too far from the infra office and they rotate between kombucha makers monthly. So that's also a great place to go and, and see what's happening in the world of, of new kombucha. So so I got a question for both of you guys to, to kind of come at. So when it comes to fermentation, I think it's good for us to know that it's often suggested to use organic produce. It's because of its higher likelihood of bacterial content from the lack of chemical spraying. So this provides a better foundation for fermentation and for the process itself, and it can even speed up the start of the process. So this is just one good tip for any newbies to fermentation. And that's good because a lot of our stores carry organic produce, so we might have some of these fermentation curious folks coming to our produce departments to, to check out. Um, so I want to know, could each of you share your favorite beginner-friendly fermentation project or tip that listeners could try at home? And I'd also like to hear any memorable or challenging experiences with home fermentation that you'd like to share. Michael, let's start with you. I think one tip that I have found because to stay motivated to wanting to ferment is to, is to start with something easy, like a creme fraiche or a yogurt. It's it, You ferment it, it's done, you can enjoy it, where something like a kimchi takes a lot longer or pick a lily is something, it's a pickled vegetable in a mustard sauce from the UK and it takes about six months to create. So, so once you gain that knowledge and how to ferment and find what you like. So you, so in the end, you've spent your time well fermenting. Awesome. So, so what have you run into with fermenting? Have you had any disasters or like wildly awesome successes? I think disaster is, is basically when ferments go wrong, they tend to go sour, no pun intended, and mold and, and other things like that tend to happen. And really it's just understanding the process with a specific type of ferment. Um, my most memorable product that I've made is creme fraiche. And it never occurred to me that the environment that you ferment in is going to change the flavor of what you're creating. So creme fraiche is, is my example where I've lived in apartments all around. And when I would make creme fraiche, the flavor is different every time. So it has to do with the specific home that you live in and what time of year that you're fermenting in. All those different factors because it is a live product. So a, a tip that I would recommend anyone doing, even though you may be an advanced fermenter or other, is to make notes on when you created that ferment and say, this is the time of year that if I make creme fraiche, I get a soft and creamy flavor 
where if it's in the summer, it's more of a sharper flavor. So it's not something that went wrong. It's just the environment that you've fermented in. Oh, that's that's really good to know. And I totally resonate with that, Michael. I've made kimchi at different times of the year, and I find that my best kimchi is produced in the winter, actually. Uh, I have a better control of my environment, and I have a lower humidity, which I think lends itself to a, a better bacterial culture. The kimchi I make in the summer, uh, it's edible, but it tends to be a little more sour tasting. And yeah, it never quite mellows out. The ones that I make in the winter, though, typically turn out much more balanced. So, so Nick, what do you have for other tips about a, a beginner fermenter or any uh, issues or things you've run into fermenting? I think I have a lot of stories because I typically like to jump into the deep end and just figure things out. One thing I would recommend is whatever you're making, the water that you're using is super important. So I typically dechlorinate my water. If I'm making kombucha, I boil it and let it sit overnight before using just to remove some of the chlorine from it. You know, if you can get great spring water, I would highly encourage that. I think the water really can make or break not only the flavor, but sometimes even the texture of your uh, of your ferments. You know, I guess a funny story. I actually remember the first time I experimented with fermentation, I was... Uh, I think I was maybe 15 or 16 years old and we had a cherry tree at our house and uh, the cherries always went to waste. They just were eaten by the birds. And I was like, you know what? My granny, she she makes she makes wine out of fruit uh, back in Louisiana. I'm going to do the same thing with these cherries. So I picked these cherries and I had about 10 gallons of fermenting cherry wine in the house. And uh, I can tell you that after about two weeks the smell was wretched. The fruit flies were out of control. Uh, and my, my Nana, she's like, Nick, I think, I think we need to try this one again. So we dumped that one. And then she helped me the second time around. And, and we had a much better product in the end. But that was definitely, that was, that was my first stab at fermentation. And honestly, that's kind of when I started falling in love with it. That's awesome. That's such a great story. Any other stories or any other uh, recollections that you guys about, have about fermentation that you want to share with the listeners? Well, I, I remember uh, a time when I was fermenting kombucha at home uh, and I was in secondary fermentation. So kombucha has a, a primary fermentation where you, you start cultivating that scoby and getting it to feed off of the sugars and producing. And then secondary is when you put it into the bottle to start building some carbonation. And I was in secondary fermentation and I was storing the bottles uh, in my basement above my fridge because that had some radiant heat. And I had ignored them for a couple days. And the next time I went down to the basement, lo and behold, I blew up six growlers of kombucha because of the pressure and uh, had a bit of a mess. Fortunately, I had them sitting on a tray but the tray overflowed and there was glass everywhere. So I quickly cleaned it up before my wife knew what happened. Is she finding out about it right now then as she's listening? <laughs> no, no. Fortunately, that secret's safe with me. I, she may listen to this podcast. We'll find out. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and go back to the, the food service side of things. So, so Michael, we all know usually fermented food, you know, like many we've mentioned, aren't necessarily the main dish but they can play a substantial role in a dish and can complement the overall flavor. Can you kind of explain how fermented foods contribute to the flavor profiles and textures of a dish? And could you share any interesting stories or experiments related to fermentation in your culinary journey 
that could help a retail food service operation up their game with ferments. So like on the base level, a flavor profile is is a factor of four things. So it is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and fermented products usually have a sour flavor. They do contain salt. So creating a recipe where you want that component to be in it, you can substitute lemon juice, vinegar, buttermilk as a way to change a recipe, modify it for something that has a richer flavor. Because a fermented flavor is going to have like you, there's herbs and garlic and seasonings that that you can add to the recipes that add a nice depth of flavor instead of just lemon juice. And if you ever notice, I don't know if you too, do you ever notice that if you're salting something, you just keep adding more salt to a recipe to add more flavor? If, you, if you've experienced it, which I have, is, is you need an acid or something sour to balance out. You're missing that component with the palate. So adding that will round out the flavor. So that's like a little tip for people who are just creating, like not necessarily having a recipe, but trying to figure out why a flavor isn't as rounded as adding some salt. So that's one little tip here. I do have one example that I absolutely love with the back in the food world days, we would sell a ton of a recipe called the garlic lovers pasta salad. And it was basic mayonnaise, pasta, garlic, buttermilk, lemon juice, to name a few of the ingredients. So the adaptation now, since since the trend is moving toward more fermented items and unique and different global flavors, is that recipe we've transformed into a kimchi lover's pasta salad. So by removing the lemon juice, by removing the buttermilk, we're using the kimchi itself as part of the dressing because of the liquid. We're not throwing that away. And we're, we're incorporating more plant-based foods in a pasta salad, which is nothing but carbohydrate. So we're adding in more health to it because, you know, I love classics and you just do a spit on it and make it healthier in the end. So that's one of my my fun little stories of, of like looking at other flavor profiles out there. Yeah, that's great. And then by taking out the buttermilk, um, does that, thinking about the ingredients you put in there, does that make that vegan then? Yeah, if you're using a, a plant-based mayonnaise, a plant-based Parmesan cheese or no Parmesan cheese, it it has a depth of flavor that's nice and it looks better. It has add some color. This kimchi is usually a chili or a shrimp paste that adds a nice, a nice rounded flavor. So yeah, you'll just have to make sure it doesn't have that fish oil or shrimp paste in the kimchi to be vegan. Yeah. Cool. Well, no, those are all great tips. Is there anything else that you guys want to leave with listeners when it comes to fermentation? Always share your stories of fermenting foods because they're great. And you learn just by hearing other people's stories of fermenting. Totally. Yeah, I think everybody could use a little more fermented food in their life, right? Maybe less of the the beer and wine variety and more of the the kraut and the kimchi. I find that I eat uh, at least a serving with lunch and usually with dinner uh, just because it helps with digestion. So yeah, get more fermented foods in your life. Cool. Well, I'd like to thank you both, Nick and Michael, for this great conversation and how we as retailers and food service professionals continue experimenting with fermentation both on shelf at home and in our dishes thank you guys thank you very much chris thanks chris ah chris retail talk was fantastic this month again i just really love the juxtaposition of like we do these things at home but we also end up buying these fermented products 
And I we talked a little bit before this episode. I love that both Nick and Michael made a point to, to highlight seasonality when it comes to home fermentation. Oh, yeah. I, I would have never thought of that. And I think you even mentioned, too, like you definitely don't want to do sauerkraut in the basement because it might come out, you know, tasting not preferable. Oh, yeah. The, the, things yeah. You, the things you pick up, the things maybe you did not know were alive and maybe should, you know, continue to exist in your house without knowing are alive in your basement. <laughs> right. But yeah, I would have never thought of that. And it, it's good to know when I go to ferment again, because I would have just thought I screwed up and probably never done it again. Oh, absolutely. I also thought that they offered some really interesting kind of tactical suggestions. And I really appreciated that, especially on Michael's part. Oh, definitely. I think, you know, with the deli too, it's, you know, a lot of natural foods delis do a lot of like making in-house. But I think it was really good for Michael to point out too, that when you're going to put this in a salad and package it and put it on the shelf in the grab and go, you probably want to do the package stuff because of all the other food safety things. So that I, I love that tip. So I had the chance to chat with Rafa, the founder of De La Calle Tapacha. I've been a fan of their tapache since it's hit store shelves. So I'm really excited for you to hear this. But first, we're going to hear from Desiree at BioK Plus Probiotics. She is a registered dietitian and an educator for BioK Plus and host of the All Sorts podcast. And you can give her show a listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, my name is Desiree Nielsen, and I'm a registered dietitian and educator with BioK Plus Probiotics. As a dietitian, I get asked about the difference between fermented foods and probiotics all the time. Fermented foods like kimchi, yogurt, and kombucha are made with live microbes that transform the food, creating short-chain fatty acids and other nutrients in the process. Whereas probiotics refers specifically to the beneficial bacteria that have been shown to improve our health. I love fermented foods as part of a gut-healthy diet but you might be surprised to know that not all of them contain actual probiotics. What sets BioK Plus Fresh Liquid Probiotic apart is that it is both a living fermented food and a clinically tested probiotic that is good for the whole family. Each little bottle of BioK Plus Probiotic is crafted with care to support your health and well-being with the strength of a guaranteed minimum 50 billion bacteria per serving. Curious? Head to www.biokplus.com to learn more about what makes BioK Plus so unique. I'd like to welcome Rafa Del Campo, the founder of De La Calle Tapache, the first of its kind to hit store shelves. Hey, Rafa, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Well, we're so excited to have you here. So my background is in both graphic design and retail merchandising. So the first time I saw your product on the shelf, it really jumped out to me, especially because of its fun, beautiful packaging. I had never tried tapache at the time, so I was curious. I bought one of each flavor, and I was instantly hooked. So I personally want to know a little bit more about you, the person behind this amazing product, and what inspired you to start De La Calle, and of all things, to pursue organic certification. But first, I think it's good to give listeners a quick rundown of what tapache is. Yes, of course. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, my name is Rafael Martinel Campo. I'm co-founder and uh, head of R&D for De La Calle, which is a fermented pineapple beverage. You know, I, my background is in food science. I've worked in multiple projects in fermentation, and it's been four years that I met Alex, our CEO and co-founder for De La Calle. He was introduced to me through a group of friends who are also partners in the business. And he brought the idea of making tapache. You know, he travels a lot and he went to Mexico. He tried tapache there and, and he came to me and he said, if I knew what tapache was. And yeah, I said, of course, you know, I make it 
in my kitchen counter since I was a kid, you know, with my grandma and I, I, they couldn't believe it. So I made samples, I made a small batch and they tried it, they loved it and the rest is story, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. So with making it yourself, what made you decide to go with organic certification on a product like this? Uh, we thought that becoming organic or offering a product that besides that it's fermented and good for you, we had to be organic, you know, because I think for the type of consumer is this is really important. And I also support the idea, you know, I think using organic pineapples and organic ingredients is important, not just for the consumer, but for the brand itself too. Awesome. Well, that's great. So one thing, I, I watched the videos on your website, which are phenomenal, very well produced. I absolutely love those. And in one of those videos, it was mentioned that tapache is an ancient fermented beverage that was handed down by the Aztecs. You know, it was originally made with corn, but over time has kind of evolved. And you can find it on the streets of Mexico with a diverse assortment of flavors found all over the country. So I'm curious, the way it's produced is nothing goes to waste. So I want to know about your guys's nothing goes to waste production process. Like how do you develop and refine flavors while balancing the innovation that you're so good at with the tradition of tapache? And then uh, I also want to know, uh, with all of this, what's been the response from the community in your hometown of Mexico City? You know, starting with the history of Tepache, you know, you were on point on, on the history there. that It was brought down by the Aztecs. Me as, as a Mexican, you know, this is very, very important because it's heritage, it's history. It means a lot to, to me besides my family memories. And then, you know, the, the recipes evolved. They evolved through time. And uh, they started making tapache with staple ingredients, which back then they they just had corn. You know, the corn maize was the main ingredient or one of the main ingredients because that's that's what grew in that area. And then once the pineapple was introduced to their diet, they started like making changes. And you know, it's interesting because if you go Mexico, is, it's also a big country and. If you go to different regions, you will find different recipes of tepache, which makes it so interesting. And in our process, yes, traditionally, you know, you use the whole pineapple and nothing goes to waste, right? For for making it in a large scale, it you know, we have to do a few changes, but we stay as true and authentic to tepache making recipe. But through my experience and my team's experience, we were able to develop a more commercialized product that it's like, you know, very close to what you taste in Mexico. And, you know, my, my inspiration comes from childhood memories and geographical locations. The feedback from Mexico, you asked about it. The feedback is, is very positive. You know, it's, we were very curious how they were, they were going to respond because, you know, as I mentioned, it's very historic and very like personal to Mexico that they took it really well. Like now we're getting a lot of feedback from distributors and buyers that they want to import the tapache to Mexico and start selling it. So uh, that's really good for, for us. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, you never know when you create a product that has uh, that personal connection, like you said, like how does that work, especially when it's released in a country not where it's from. But I think because of your culture and, and your experience with it, that's still got that personal connection that brings it back to, to the culture, which I think is great. So not only in Mexico but, or the United States, there's growing consumer interest in beverages all over that include probiotics and focus on gut health, 
which has also been a very competitive category in, in the natural food side. So there's various probiotic sodas and juices and, of course, kombucha and all these things that have come to the market more recently, like with tapache. I'm wondering what role do you see tapache playing in the fermented drink category? And do you foresee a tapache subcategory with additional brands competing at some point? Yeah, I think, you know, well, right now, tapache is in its own category. So it's very unique because it's an innovative product. And of course, there there will be others that will be joining the race and uh, they're going to be you know, using that space. But currently, tapache is in the fun- functional uh, category, uh, which we are in the same category as kombucha or uh, juice shots, functional beverages, el- elixirs. And, but as of today, we can say that we're the number one tapache brand in the U.S. <laughs> Hey, it's good to have that as long as you can, right? Yes, of course. And it feels good. Yeah, no, that that's good while well, well, you have it. So do you know if there's anything else in the market coming up? Have you heard any rumblings of any other Tapache companies or anything like that? Or has it been pretty silent? I think that uh, we have observed the, the market trend. Of course, we, we study and analyze the data. And uh, we have observed that the actual Tapache it has been trending a lot in not only in the US but worldwide. So we see other brands trying to to launch their products, maybe not as big uh, currently, but you know there's there's people trying to make their own tapache batches and you know start making it. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's great too that you guys have videos of how to make tapache on your website. Like that's interesting. It's usually you like to be a little proprietary about your your personal product, but you're very open of like, try it, make it yourself, play around with it, have fun with different flavor profiles. So I think that's that's really cool. Yes, I, I mean, we, we want to educate. Yeah, it's, it's important for us to educate the consumer and uh, not everybody knows about Tepache. So we like to share, we have an amazing marketing team, Alex and his studio. They have so many talented people, the people that is involved in making those videos. I always enjoy making them and we have lots of good times. Yeah, they're, they're super fun. I, I recommend anyone listening right now to go to the De La Calle website and, and check them out. They're a lot of fun. So I'd have to imagine with releasing a product like Tapache that's rather unknown to the world outside of Mexico, or at least it was before you launched, had to have come with its challenges. So what were some of your obstacles gaining adoption of Tapache when you, when you all initially started? Yeah, because uh, we are one of the first doing this. As I mentioned, education is is uh, one of my, our major goals, and of course, obstacles because it's challenging. It takes time and and resources to to do this education. Not everyone here knows what what is tapache or how it is important to educate people about it. Uh, so it requires a lot of demos, a lot of you know sampling, and you as as you mentioned at the beginning, you know you really have to try it to be hooked on on the product. Totally. So what uh, what advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur that wants to bring the flavors of their culture to the rest of the world? I think you should go all in and get your ideas developed. You know, you should just go without any stop signs and just try it. Because once you try it, you know, you will see you will see the project being developed and something small can become very big. Awesome. I'd have to imagine the people you partner with is, is a big help as well. 
Yes, we have the the best team, to be honest. You know, it's very complete. We have, I think we cover everything. You know, it's we covered product development, uh, commercialization, uh, production, operations, and marketing, of course. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I first saw your store in a, in a local co-op here, but then I went shopping at Target inside in Target and I was like, wow, how did this brand that I first saw at a co-op launch out into Target. So yeah, I think your team is doing a phenomenal job. You guys are, are really doing it. So congrats to you and your team on that. So speaking of trying your tapache, I personally love the pineapple spice traditional flavor. That's my go-to. It's what's in my fridge right now. But I also love the watermelon jalapeno flavor. I absolutely love a good spicy drink. I think you guys do that one really, really well. So I want to know what's your personal favorite flavor from your product lineup. And can you give us the story behind it? I think my favorite flavor right now is tamarind citrus. It's actually the green can. And uh, this flavor is one of the original flavors. It was inspired, my inspiration base was based on, on, on the actual tamarind fruit. And not many people knows what tamarind is, but it is a tropical fruit. I have lots of memories. So that's my second reason why I decided to use tamarind. Because when I was, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of summers in the beach in Mexico and I would spend all my money in, in, in the street markets buying these tam tamarind candies, you know? So, and besides that, I love the flavor. So that's, that's probably one of my favorites. Awesome. That is one I have not tried. So that, that is now on my list since it's your favorite. So is there anything that you want folks listening to know about you or the De La Calle brand or Tapache? before we sign off? Well, as far as innovation goes, stay tuned. We just launched um, three new flavors. There are three tropical flavors. We're trying really hard to move those in the market, but that's the, the farthest uh, innovation as of now. Cool. Is there a, a month coming up we should be prepared for those? No, they're already selling in the market, so you can find those. Uh, there are three flavors. Uh, there are tropical flavors, and well, one is pineapple chili, which is different from your favorite, the pineapple spice. Uh, it has like a, an, a different kind of kick because of the chili. And hibiscus citrus, and the third one is a tropical punch. Ooh, those all sound really good. Well, I'm excited to try those. Well, thanks, Rafa. I appreciate your time today. It was great getting to know you and learning more about the brand. I appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. It was a pleasure. Join us next time as we'll be diving into one of the four P's of category management, product mix. And not only are we diving in, but I actually get to do the retail talk interview next episode. And Chris, you get to do the member interview. How was that? Oh, it was so fun. And uh, so you'll be hearing from Andy at Mama Jeans. Him and I met at the Infra Annual Conference and had great conversations. So thanks, Angela, for letting me take over and uh, nerd out on category management with Andy. Um, and we're going to find out about his data approach to category management. And then we're going to dig in with folks from Cadia and how they work to complement the overall product mix in natural food sets at independent grocers. That's it. See ya. Bye. Well, folks, that's it for this episode of The Buyer's Desk. Thanks to Angela for co-hosting. And I appreciate the contributions from Infra staff, Infra members, and Infra vendors for helping to make this episode happen. 
I appreciate all of you who listened this far, and I hope to see you next month for another episode. <laughs>